I have in my house a nativity set that once belonged to my parents. I don't actually know where they got it from. It's made of olive wood, so maybe it came from Jerusalem, I'm not sure. What I do know is that it sat on the credenza of my parents' living room every Christmas of my childhood, and I was obsessed with it. <laughs> it was easily my favorite Christmas decoration. All during December uh, each year, I would return to it every few days and I'd rearrange the figurines. Does anybody have this going on in their house right now? I would move baby Jesus and his manger from one side of the stable to the other. I'd move the shepherd, the guy with the sheep around his shoulders. I'd, I'd move him around outside the stable like he was trying to get a good look but didn't want to get too close. Uh, I'd change the order of the wise men, imagining who brought in their gifts first. I'd, I'd move the little animals around during the month so they would take turns about who was closest to the baby. I now have that nativity set in my home, and I actually had to break out the wood glue this year because the stable had fallen apart after 40 years of having it in my family. But as I set it up again this year, I'll tell you, I've played around with the figurines. I arranged them this way, and then I arranged them that way, and really no different than when I was eight, and you know what? I liked it just as much. But this year, like most years, even as a child, I picked up the figurine who was supposed to be Joseph, and I said, is this Joseph? Like, how do I know for sure? It, he could just be another shepherd. I mean, there's really nothing remarkable about him at all. Why does he even need to be here, really? What do, we, what do we do with this guy? Joseph, what do we do with that guy? Haven't you ever wished to know more about him? I think Joseph is one of the most underdeveloped characters in the gospel. I mean, we know how important fathers are, whether you had a really good one or a not good one. They have a huge impact on our lives. So surely Joseph helped to shape who Jesus was. Sometimes people imagine that maybe Joseph helped Jesus learn carpentry skills, though there's not a single line in the gospel anywhere that confirms for us that Jesus had anything to do with carpentry. Sometimes people imagine Joseph sharing his wisdom and sharing teachings with little boy Jesus. But you know, there's this moment in the gospel of Luke where Jesus, he gets up and he preaches his first sermon and he's so eloquent and he's so wise. And the scripture says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? It's like they're saying, where did this smart kid come from? It couldn't have been from those parents. This is not a compliment to Jesus's dad. And then in the later parts of the Gospels, Joseph, he just disappears. We never hear about him again. Mary, we read in the Gospel of John, Mary was at the foot of the cross, but Joseph, there's, there's no clue about what happened to that guy. He's just gone. He's never mentioned again. In fact, for the whole rest of the New Testament, no one ever speaks about him again. He just no longer seems important. But I think he's important. In fact, I think he's got a gift to give us this Advent season to remind us about what it means to have a sense of peace even when the world around us feels anything but calm. We've started here this wonderful season of Advent, four weeks that we take each year to prepare ourselves for Christmas. And you're busy preparing yourself for Christmas. I know you are. I am too. 
You're decorating and you're shopping and you're wrapping and you're baking. You're making travel plans. You're trying to figure out who you're going to see when. You're watching Hallmark Christmas movies. I know you are. I know it. You know, I went to the eye doctor like three weeks ago and I brought a book to read in the waiting room. And when I sat down, the TV across from me was uh, playing a Hallmark Christmas movie. It was November 19th. But I noticed the movie immediately and I just resolved to ignore it. How many pages of my book do you think I got read? (laughs) Yeah, none, none. Those movies, they hook you. Anyway, we're busy with Christmas preparations and all those preparations are wonderful and I'm so glad to be doing them in a much fuller way than we got to do last year. But with all those physical preparations, the season of Advent invites us to also prepare our hearts, to prepare our spirits for this celebration of Christmas. We need to pay attention to that, getting internally ready for Christmas, not just externally. And internally, when we reflect on what Christmas is all about, what is it that we need? What is it that we need from God? Well, we need a lot. It doesn't take very much reflecting on the world to realize that not everything around us is as it should be. We're lost, and we're hurting, and we need a Savior. The celebration of Christmas, it's a reminder to us that God sees our pain, God hears our cries, and God acts. God has not left us alone. God has sent Jesus to save us. And the season of Advent, this, these weeks, it gives us space to remember our need and remember the beautiful way that God has come to love us and love the world. And part of the way that God accomplished this miracle of the incarnation was through this guy named Joseph. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us a whole lot about Mary, about the story of Mary, but it's in the Gospel of Matthew that we find the most information about Joseph. Though in the end, it's not that much information. We do know, what we know about him shows that he was in a really tough spot, okay? Mary came to tell him that she was pregnant, and in the ancient Near East, once a couple was engaged, they were legally bound to one another. It was much more serious than Uh, what we consider engagement. It was already a legal contract, but because Mary had become pregnant by somebody else, she had broken that engagement contract. So Joseph, he had two choices according to the law, according to the Old Testament. He could divorce her publicly and shame her for her unfaithfulness, a shaming that the scripture says could go so far that the community could have decided to stone her, or he could break off their engagement quietly and not share with the whole world why the marriage was off. Now Joseph, the scripture tells us, he was ready to choose the more humane option. He was being kind when it says he planned to dismiss her quietly. It was an act of mercy. Mary, she was going to have trouble still being single and pregnant and needing to rely on her family to take care of her, but Joseph's honor, the honor of his family, it would have been saved by this choice. But of course, we've read the scripture and we know that Joseph changed his mind. He changed his mind about breaking off the engagement. It took an angel in a dream, but when Joseph got word from God how to proceed, that he should go ahead and get married, he did it. And it seems like he did it without any drama. He did as the message from God instructed him. He took Mary as his wife. He took Mary as his wife and then he did one more important thing for this baby. As he was instructed to do, he named the baby Jesus. Jesus. That sounds like a holy name, doesn't it? Sounds like a special name to us. 
It's not. It's not. We know it as the name Jesus because everything that we read about him was originally written in Greek. And Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua that we usually translate as Joshua. It's really a very common Hebrew name. You might have sometimes sung this song. I don't know if we've sung it here any time lately, but there's a song, Jesus, name above all names. Beautiful Savior, glorious Lord. Well, it's not. Jesus is not a name above all names. It's a really common name, Yeshua. It's like he was named John or Michael or Amy, right? Super common. His first and most popular name is a really common Hebrew name. And that's important, I think, because Jesus' ordinariness is a crucial part of his story. He was human. He was really human. He was born as this vulnerable baby, and he was given a common name, a name that he might have shared with other boys in his village, a name that he could find in his own scripture book. Maybe his father told him stories of another Joshua, the one who attacked Jericho, the one who succeeded Moses. So Joseph names this baby Jesus, Yeshua. But you know what that means? I don't know if it's in Penny's baby book of names or not, but it means God saves. It means God saves. Yeshua does. And that's an appropriate name for this baby, isn't it? God saves. Joseph might not have known everything that was going to be in store for his son, but he knew by that name that this baby was special. It was an expression of God's saving love. What strikes me about all this, though, is how matter-of-fact it is in the Bible, how calm it all seems. For a moment, it seems like there's disaster, like the engagement is off, like the marriage is over, but then Joseph gets clarity from God, he gets instructions from God, and he knows what he needs to do, and he goes and he does it. I I sense a, a kind of peace in Joseph, a peace that comes from having a clear purpose. It's not like the angel in the dream fixed everything. It's not like all the hard stuff was gone. Think about this. Joseph still had to deal with the embarrassment or the shame of this early pregnancy. I mean, Mary, it says, she was found to be with child. There were no sonograms in the ancient Near East. So this was not the first few weeks of pregnancy. People could do the math. They knew that something was unusual when she gave birth a few months after the wedding ceremony. And then Jesus is born, and the Magi visit, and if you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph and the family, they have to flee. They have to go to Egypt to keep the baby safe from murderous Herod. They became refugees for years until it was safe for them to come back home. Joseph and Mary, they didn't have an easy path just just because they had this clarity from God. But that doesn't mean that they didn't also have peace. We talk a lot about peace this time of year. We pray for it. We sing about it. We light candles in hopes of it. And usually, I think, our hoped-for peace are those kind of moments where everything's good and everything's tidy and everything's going our way and we don't have any difficulties. And we hear that word peace and we think, that's when life is all lined up the way I want it and everyone's behaving the way I want and we're curled up by the fire in matching pajamas with hot cocoa in our hands and dogs laying on our feet and snow gently falling outside. Oh wait, I'm back to a Hallmark Christmas movie, aren't I? (laughs) No. Life hardly gives us moments like that. But the truth is, 
just like for Joseph, we don't have to have everything perfect in order to have an inward sense of peace. God can actually give us the gift of peace even when things around us are not totally settled. I was talking to a friend of mine this week and we were discussing some people we know who are really caught up in a bunch of what ifs about the United Methodist Church. What's gonna happen in the next two years in our denomination? And what, if this happens, then what about this? And if this happens, then what about this? Where will we be? And, and they're kind of living with this low-grade anxiety over, over stuff that they have no control. My friend, he said to me, he's another pastor, he said, well, I see it this way. He said, either Jesus is Lord or he isn't. And if he's Lord, then the church is going to survive one way or another, and there'll be plenty of work to do. And if Jesus isn't Lord, then we have much bigger problems. Right. Now, those words don't sound so soothing or peaceful, but actually that was his intent. He was trying to point toward a peace that we can claim even when we don't know the future. I mean, do we trust God with our lives? Do we realize that we can't control the future? Do we realize we can't control the people around us? And if we say yes to those things, then it can bring us a sense of calm, even in the midst of unsettled moments. No matter how uncertain the future, it is possible for God to give us a peace that transcends our understanding. Or I think about a former church member who came to me one day and said that her father had been diagnosed with cancer. It was aggressive. He was 83, and the outlook was tough. She'd gone to the appointment with him, and sitting there in the doctor's office, she described looking at the doctor across the desk, and the doctor outlined this course of surgery and radiation and chemo that would take up much of the next year. And the doctor said, there's no guarantee it's going to slow down the cancer very much, but we can give it a shot. And as soon as the doctor finished talking, my friend's father said, no. He instantly knew he did not want to be in the hospital and sick for the next year of his life, especially if the possibility of helping was slim. So I asked my friend, I said, how do you feel about this? She said, how can I be upset? He knows what he wants and he has total peace about it, I'm praying for that kind of peace too. Now, there's nothing easy about that kind of situation. It's full of sadness, it's full of grief, and yet, and yet God can give us clarity and peace, even in moments when we are accepting death, a peace that far transcends our circumstances. Now, I don't know just where it is that you are in need of a new sense of peace today. Maybe you're suffering like many of us are from this kind of low-grade anxiety about the state of the world, about the state of the climate, about the state of our democracy, about the state of public health. I mean, there's plenty to be unsettled about in the world, plenty of reasons to look for and hope for a renewed sense of peace today. Or Maybe in your life, you're grappling with something big. Maybe you're staring down a dragon of some kind. You're trying to decide if it's the right time to leave a job or you're debating about ending or changing a relationship. Maybe there's something today that has your heart turned inside out and it looks like it's going to create a big mess ahead of you. Whether your worries are big or small today, I want to remind you that God is right beside you. 
God does not leave us alone, especially in our hardest times. That is the essential part of the message of Christmas. And no no matter how hard or how messy it looks, it is possible to have peace, a peace that passes our understanding. How do we get there? We pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. We ask God for the peace and the help that we need, and then we ask again, and then we ask again, and we pray for God to send people to help us, and we look for those people that can support us toward peacefulness, and we ask for help to find space from the people who increase our anxiety. We look for places where it's safe to be sad or to wrestle with what we're dealing with. You know, we can have peace and be sad at the same time. That is actually possible. We pray for God to help us, and and we realize that that can mean getting help from therapists or antidepressants when life is at its hardest. But those kind of things don't show a lack of faith. God has given us those tools as a way to help us toward peace. We use all those tools around us, and then we continue to pray. We pray for God to help us stay settled on our course. We pray for God to increase our trust, and we trust in God's power and we trust in God's wisdom. Now, I don't know what happened to Joseph. I don't know how his story ended. What I do know is that when he was faced with a giant obstacle, he listened to the voice of God, and carefully, calmly, peacefully, he moved forward. May he be a help to us today, encouraging us to seek the peace we need, so we can approach this season of Christmas with joy, hope, love, and peace abounding. Thanks be to God. Amen.